I, tr I trust in Jesus more than anybody, even more than my wife. But I also know that Jesus is going to hurt my feelings. He's going to say things and do things that drive me mad. But I don't follow him and have faith in him because I get everything I want. I follow him because he's worthy of my trust. That was A.J. Swoboda. And this is the Things Above Podcast. My guest today on the Things Above podcast for our Things Above conversation is Dr. A.J. Swoboda. He's the assistant professor of Bible and theology and world Christianity at Bushnell University in Oregon. He also leads a doctor of ministry program and is the author of a number of excellent books, including the award-winning book, Subversive Sabbath, and the book, After Doubt, a book that we're going to talk about today. And he is also the co-host of the Slow Theology podcast with Nijay Gupta. And also, AJ is going to be one of the speakers at the Apprentice Gathering in September, and we are very excited to have AJ as a part of the Apprentice Gathering this year. So welcome back, AJ, to the Things Above podcast. You know, it takes a lot of courage on your behalf to invite me back a second time, and it is more than an honor to join you and to, frankly, call into one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to everything that you do uh, on my evening exercise. And we are uh, greatly privileged, Jim, by the work that you do and by the guests that you, you have on. So thank you for all that you get to, the, all oh, that you do thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And I am a huge fan of all of your work and, and, and just the friendship that we've developed over the last few years and uh, collaborating on some projects together has been, has been a blast. And the fact that you let me Change your name mm. uh, or make up a name that AJ stands for Aloysius Juniper, Yep. which I want to, I want to believe that it is. It's not even close, yep. but the fact that you let me have fun with that because AJ is such a cool, your name is cool. Jim Smith yeah. is not cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, as, as we, as we both know in, in the Bible, uh, God gives Adam permission to name the animals, which speaks to the authority that he has over them. And uh, you can, you can name me anything you want, friend, because you have, you have a unique you have a unique role in my life as a ruler of my I love yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Well, AJ, um, man, you have written such such good stuff. And today I want to talk about After Doubt, that book. And it, one of the things that you do so well, and, and I, I said this in my endorsement, that you helped me really embrace my doubts. That I it, doubt was something that I was as a Christian for many, many years, very afraid of, I, you know, doubt was a sign of a lack of faith that doubt was uh, an indication that something was really terrible in my, my soul. And I needed to, and so when I read your book, I, I had this whole new, new narrative. There we go. I mean, I had, a, I, I was able to let go of that false narrative that, that doubts are these terrible things and that we should just run from them and so forth, but really to uh, learn how to embrace them and see them in the right light. So one of the questions that I ask every author on the podcast is, so why did you write this book? After Doubt is a, uh, is a, is an, is an, is a really important book in my own journey, largely as a result that it is 
it, you know, as an author, you're often written, not just why did you write something, but how long did it take you? This particular book took me about 15 years to write. And it, mm. it's a cumulative um, project that I've really been working on for um, 15, 20 years because of the kinds of people that I have been doing ministry with and to. For 10 years, I was a college pastor. Uh, for 10 years, I pastored a church in urban Portland. Now I am a, a full-time academic teaching at a Christian university, teaching theology. And as a result of the work that I do, of, of these environments of college ministry, urban Portland, and now back in the university, I have spent the majority of my adult life serving the spiritual needs of people in transition. College students, uh, what 18 to 25 year olds, represent a group of people that are have left home. They're no longer in their uh, under more often than not no no longer under their their roof that that raised them, the family that they were uh, brought into this world with, and are now in a whole new world. And watching those people go through the process of leaving their you know, what Dallas Willard once called the the uh, community of sufficiency, the, the place where um, they, their circle of sufficiency, their home where they were loved mm. and embraced and are now in a whole new world. And how that brings about a whole new set of questions. Um, and it raises for a lot of people a tremendous amount of new questions that they did not even know before uh, this experience. So mm. I wrote this book, uh, largely sitting in the front row and watching what happens when young people walk through the experience of what you and I would call doubt or some have called deconstruction um, and, yeah. and how to faithfully follow Jesus through that experience. And, and the premise of the book is that it is possible. It is possible to question your faith without losing it. And that questioning your faith actually at the end of the day can be one of the ways that you love God the most. Mm. Wow. That is so, yeah, and that, that shifts the, the focus away from, oh, no, this is terrible. This is a bad, this is a sign that something bad is happening. Um, you know, I, I was thinking of James Fowler's classic book. It's an older book now, Stages of Faith. But I remember that he, he talked about as children, uh, a child's faith is very literal. That's why if you ask a child to, to draw a picture of God, it's going to be a, an old man with a beard yep. sort of thing. Faith is very literal. And then in the, in the adolescent years, he calls it synthetic conventional faith. And then that is when we begin to develop a faith, but it's really the faith of our parents or our faith community, yep. our, our youth pastor, our pastor. Because you don't have a, a faith of your own, you have the faith of other people who are sort of telling you, this is what, this is who God is, this is what God, heaven would be, whatever it is. But then um, when you move into college, that's when it begins to change because that synthetic um, conventional faith now becomes something that I have to wrestle with. Yep. And because my faith is no longer mom and dad's faith. It's interesting you're describing that because when that is exactly what Fowler was saying is around that age of 18 is when you're suddenly going, no, I need to have a faith of my own. Yep. Is that similar to where you're going? Yeah. So, so the, the way that I describe it in After Doubt is the difference between what we would call inherited faith uh, or inherited belief and accepted mm. belief. And the, yeah. the difference is one that um, the, the, the faith that we've been given by others um, and then the faith that we ourselves have re received. 
And there has to be the handoff at some point. There has to be the handoff from an inherited faith to an accepted faith. Um, Now, different Christian communities do this differently in different contexts. For example, uh, the the Amish community, uh, this is a really kind of powerful uh, example of how a community moves from the young, from the inherited to the accepted belief, is they will practice something called the Rumspringa. Uh, in in uh, in German, uh, I think in German, it's it's called the running around. And that is that on the 16th birthday, every Amish kid is is literally sent into the world to to party, to do what they please, to uh, to taste the world. And upon having this experience of the running around, the Rumspringa, make a decision whether they want to come back into the Amish community and be baptized or not. And by, by the way, interestingly enough, in, in the Amish community, the, the numbers are astounding. 98% of the Amish young return to be baptized. And I would contend that wow. the reason that's the case is that the Amish have such a strong fabric of community that they see the sort of individualistic Western world that we live in, and they go, I can't, I, I, I wouldn't even want to live in this world if I, if I could. Um, but every community is going to do it differently. What, what we need to recognize for ourselves is there is a difference between the faith that was handed to us and the faith that we have chosen to receive uh, for ourselves. And that, that shift is a critical part of our uh, development, because if we spend our entire lives with only uh, an inherited belief, then we never can be truly transformed uh, by by that belief. Uh, here's a great way to explain it. When I was a kid, I would watch my mom grow tomatoes. My mom was a she made this soup. I don't know if you've ever had it called. Uh, 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 it's called um, oh, what did she call it? Uh, it's it's this tomato soup uh, gazpacho. You ever had gazpacho? I was almost going to say that oh. when you're so it's this yeah. it's this it's cold right? cold tomato yeah. vegetable soup. And I remember as a kid watching my mom grow tomatoes, being in the in the, the, the table, watching my mom outside in the window growing these tomatoes. As a kid, um, I watched my mom love tomatoes. And as an adult, I've had to learn how to grow tomatoes for myself. And I still don't know how to make gazpacho. My mom is going to teach me. But there was a transition that happened from me watching her to me be falling in love with the process myself. And that mm-hmm. that is for Fowler and for any of us that are interested in discipleship. And, and the formation of people, that transition from uh, inherited to accepted belief and faith is a very, very critical one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Fowler calls that stage the accepted. He calls it the individuative reflective. Mm. And I, I like that language. It's a little complicated, but the idea, and it could, because I've been teaching at the university for 32 years and also been dealing with the 18 to 22 year olds. And, um, and you do see that it's a, it's a time for someone to say like, what is it that I think? And that, that reflective part that I'm reading something now and it's opening my mind to something new and it can be really powerful and good. It can lead to problems. Um, I've had the experience and I want you to get your thoughts on this, AJ, where, and you know, the work that I do is a lot on, on false and true narratives and, um, some students will come into our program in our Christian formation program and begin examining, like, well, who do I think God is? And as they begin to, to think about their God narratives, for example, a, the most common one, God is, is angry. Like God is mad at me. And they move away from that into, wait a minute, maybe God 
actually loves me. Maybe God is love. And occasionally I've seen some, some of them struggle with that because they're like, why didn't my church teach me this? Mm. Why did, why did I not get this when I was growing up? And it's almost like now I'm going to go to Kubler-Ross. It's almost like now you have, you know, anger and grief and (laughs) all these other stages of, uh, as you begin to come through that to another side and say, wow, how do I, what have your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that experience of um, feeling like, why didn't people around me teach me this stuff before I got into the, into the world is a very normal experience for those in the Christian faith. My students have that experience often and can actually, if not attended to, lead to some really unhealthy shaming of our family of origins for not perfectly mm. educating us. The truth is any of us that have those emotions about our past are eventually going to leave our kids and those that we're discipling with some deficiency. We're not going to perfectly hand on the faith. Um, so nobody was given it perfectly. But I think part of it may be that in the journey of following Jesus, it takes a lifetime to 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 come to a place of of seeing God for who God is. And even in our life, we will not see God fully. We will see him in part, as Paul says, and it is only upon resurrection uh, mm-hmm. that we will see him face to face. That we we see in part, we don't see perfectly. We can't see perfectly. Uh, and and so in in a in a way, we 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 will spend our entire life figuring out how wrong we have been. And mm-hmm. and that, that journey of learning how to be wrong um, is is the journey of humility. Uh, it's the journey of recognizing that God is a really good parent who gives us what we need when we need it. You know, as I as when I, I often will say that my son. You know, we just recently had the birds and the bees talk with my son, uh, and and that's a a, tr- a tremendously exciting and terrifying experience to have with a child mm-hmm. when you begin to invite them into the world of sexuality. And yeah. we uh, we had a, a just a breathtaking conversation about the birds and the bees on a road trip this summer. And there's, you know, as a parent, you know, this to be the case, those conversations you can't have with a kid when they're three years old, because they won't ever look at you ever again. You know, there has to be a certain degree of wisdom in giving children what they can handle at the right moment. And there are things right now that God has not revealed to us because we can't handle it. He does not give uh, all of himself in revelation to us. As Luther would say, Moses saw God's backside, his posteriori day, the backside mm-hmm. of God. We can't see it all. And that's because we can't handle it all. And that's okay. It takes a lifetime to learn about God. And we shouldn't shame our old selves for not knowing things that God has revealed to us recently. Yeah. Well, I think that's also true about even ourselves. I remember Dallas talking a lot about how God, if God wanted to reveal everything about us, the full truth, we probably would yep. would be unable to withstand that. And so he's gracious. Um, you know, you see those kind of situations where someone's like, I'm going to tell you the truth about you. And like, wow, that, that hurts, that sort of thing. But even us, mm-hmm. we have to be ready to, to be in a place where we can hear the, the fullness of our, of our own truth. You, you mentioned the word deconstruction, and that's a big word uh, has been at least for the last five, six years and more than that, really, but quite a lot. We've been hearing a lot about deconstruction and how a part of faith development involves, uh, taking apart something Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. that maybe wasn't, 
that wasn't working. And I'll, I'll tell just a quick story, but there's a young man that I've been, I've been meeting with and um, he had a, a, a really difficult uh, early experience with church things and, and has since in his uh, early thirties, he, he's left it completely, but he can't shake Jesus. He can't quite let go of, of that. And he wants to be around people who know Jesus and, and have those talks, but he's very honest in saying, look, I don't believe anymore. And that sort of thing. Mm. But as we were having a conversation over coffee a month or so ago, um, I brought up deconstruction and I said, I said, I've, I've actually done a lot of deconstruction in my own faith and I'm still doing it. And he looked at me shocked. He goes, wait a minute, you're like a preacher, Christian writer, professor. How can you possibly be doing deconstruction? I said, that's just a part of the journey. It's a, I, I come to an awareness that, well, I really didn't understand that part of it. Um, but here's the thing though, AJ, and I, I wonder get your thoughts on this. I mean, I've, I've never not, I've never stopped believing in Jesus. Jesus has, was always very real to me, even though my own faith has undergone a lot of deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, but I've, I feel like through it all, that one consistent thing is I've never actually walked away from Jesus. Yeah. So um, the word deconstruction increasingly in my, in my purview is, is, an, is, is, a, is a term littered with so much baggage that it almost doesn't serve anybody anymore. Um, largely as a result of the, the fact that um, for one person, deconstruction means walking away from Jesus. But for another person, it means reevaluating their faith so that they can follow Jesus. Um, so let I'm going to pull away from the word deconstruction for a moment and just I, okay. I want to tell a story and then and then describe how um, how how questioning are uh, are what we believe actually can be a really healthy thing. A uh, gr- great example of this: a number of years ago, I was teaching uh, a course uh, in uh, church history. It was a, a church history uh, one class, which is basically. Um, the uh, inception of the church, so uh, from you know Acts two, essentially, all the way till the Protestant Reformation. Try covering that in a semester. Wow! And in the midst of uh, this semester, I, I had the opportunity to give a lecture on uh, on on uh, Martin Luther, and I do a, a whole lecture on Luther, his theology, his background, so on and so forth. And it just so happens that uh, one of the professors at the seminary I was teaching at, uh, Dr. Larry Shelton, this was at George Fox University back in the years when it was still George Fox, um, got to come to the class. And he sat in the back and he was just kind of interested in supporting me and, and wanted to be there. And I give the lecture. I finished the lecture and he um, afterwards says, you know, I'd love to chat with you for a few minutes if you got it afterwards in my office. And I go to his back office and he starts the conversation and he goes, AJ, that was, that was such an incredible lecture. Um, thank you. Uh, there's only one problem. And that is that um, most of it was wrong. <laughs> and I, and my jaw hit the floor because he, he uh, Shelton was a world renowned Wesleyan scholar. He knows his history. And he pointed out to me some of the core uh, sort of facts and points of Luther's life that I had just missed. And, you know, when when a teacher figures out that they've been wrong about something, it creates a problem. Because what are you supposed to do? Like go back and find all your old students and apologize <laughs> and say, you know, I was just I, I know you've built your life on my lecture on Luther, but I, I got to give you the facts here that are that are right. 
I had to do some work after that lecture. And I'll tell you, when I do my Luther mm. lecture now, it's very different than when I did it 10 years ago. That is, a, mm. that is what you and I would call, in a way, that is what you and I would call deconstruction. It is yeah. undoing something that you have discovered is not true. By the way, the Bible has a word for this. Uh, the, the, the Greek word in the New Testament for, for this is called metanoia, which literally means to change your mind. And it is the right. word that it's translated as, as repentance. Uh, the word repentance is, is recognizing and reforming based on what is true. If that, if that kind of uh, rethinking is wrong, then we're all toast. Because mm-hmm. every single one of us have areas of our thought and thinking that simply do not reflect reality, truth, and the way of Jesus. And so it is yeah. upon it is incumbent upon us to live a life of repentance, of constantly being open to truth and 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 being willing to reform what we think in light of who Jesus actually is. Oh wow, that is so good. That is yeah. Absolutely. And what a great word. Meta change noia news mind. Change your mind. And Jesus was all about that. He was constantly uh yep. he was he was changing people's minds. Uh, all the time about about who is, I mean all of his parables are these mind blowing ideas and and when I I remember when I was studying the parables one of the things that that really stood out to me was how many of the parables and I did not know this many of the parables were parables that were known to the people that rabbis used but in Jesus case he flipped them and so like the parables of the workers in the vineyard who start uh, at different times of the day. That was a parable that was taught by the rabbis, except in their version of it, it was all about getting to work early and earning your keep and mm. doing it. So there, the, there's the punchline at the end was that, yeah, you get what you deserve. Like you, if you came late in the day, you didn't get much if you'd. And so, so Jesus takes this, this well-known story, but then he, the punchline's different. Mm, like at the end, mm. he's like, oh, and they all got the same pay. And you're going, wait, what, wait. Mm. What, a, what a brilliant teacher. Mm. But what he was doing was showing us something about the grace of God that, mm. that uh, you know, in our culture of earning, or the world, the way, the way we think the world's supposed to be. Yep. Here's Jesus going, no, the kingdom is actually, everybody's welcome. Yep. And yep. we don't, this. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's, he, was, he was changing people's narratives. The, the prodigal son, my goodness, that story is full of metanoia. It's like, change your mind. Like Jewish fathers shouldn't run. You know, this, what the son did should never. And so his stories were all about changing our minds and even the kingdom being available. Yeah. Yeah. The first, uh, to underscore this, to highlight it, the first words out of John the Baptist's mouth uh, in the Gospels is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus preaches his very first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth, the first words out of his mouth are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Um, so just to underscore the, the, the importance of repentance for the follower of Jesus. By the way, at the, in the early church, this was a, a common practice among writers in both antiquity, but it, it actually has been practiced throughout the history of the church. And that, that is that when you were a theologian, you would often... Uh, the very last book you would write uh, would be 
uh, your recantations. You would you read your all the things that you were wrong about. Um, <laughs> your your retractations, I should say. Yeah. And <clears throat> the very last book, for example, that Saint Augustine wrote is called Augustine's Retractations, where he basically rips himself to shreds in an entire book and says, this is all the stuff I used to say that I am complete. I would, I've been completely wrong about. And by the way, as a charismatic, there's some really funny stuff in there that he doesn't retract. For example, he says, you know, I, there's been all this stuff I've been wrong about, but he goes, but I was not wrong about the miraculous and the supernatural. I've seen too many miracles to not believe in it. So mm. there, it's it's really cool to see at the end of his life the things that he says. I, I've been I've been absolutely wrong about all that stuff, but man alive, this stuff is is true. That's Augustine. For whatever you think about Augustine's theology and story, um, that's that's one of our heroes in the church. I mean, he's one of the, the you know the early church fathers who we've based so much of our theology on. Um, and if Augustine is given some freedom uh, to honestly repent, intellectually repent, good night, we should have the same responsibility. Now, can, can, mm -hmm. can I say with that, there is a difference. There is a fundamental difference between deconstructing beliefs and deconstructing faith. <clears throat> the difference is this. It's the difference between, in a marriage, rethinking how you live your marriage, rethinking your practices, your rhythms, your home life, and rethinking whether you love your spouse. Mm. Um, in the book of Jeremiah, I, I draw this from the book of Jeremiah. Jer Jeremiah 12 tells this section where Jeremiah is essentially complaining to God. There's a couple cool sections in the Old Testament of just complaint, uh, complaints. Uh, the book of Habakkuk is just a series of complaints. That's, that's essentially what it is. Well, when you read Jeremiah 12, uh, Jeremiah comes to God and he is offering God a complaint. He's saying, God, why have you let all this stuff happen? Why, um, why are you allowing the Babylonians to destroy us, so on and so forth? And the very first line in, Jer in Jeremiah 12, I love this line. Jeremiah says to God, he says, you are right, God. You are always right. Yet I would ask you, yet I would speak to you. And then he lays into his complaint. I, the way Jeremiah has structured his complaint is the path forward for the person who loves Jesus. Because the question that Jeremiah is going to ask is asked in the context of trusting in God. He says, you are right. You are always right, God. Yet I have this complaint against you. <laughs> the question is set in the framework of covenant love. When we begin to ask questions because we've lost our faith in God, that's where dark stuff starts happening. And that's, by the way, the story of Job, when Job's wife says to him, uh, you know, curse God, Job. And the text says that Job, yes, he brings God his questions, but he never blames God. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a balance there because the minute we start questioning the goodness of God and, and losing our faith, ah, things start getting weird. That's, that's dangerous deconstruction. It is important that we question our beliefs while holding true to the truth that God is worthy of our trust. He can be trusted even when our questions are flying at us right and left. Wow. That is so good, AJ. And, th and that's been the experience that I've had with the young man that I mentioned earlier that, um, that I've been meeting with who will say he's, he's lost his faith, but and yet he hasn't like, 
And there's another young man that also in, in, in similar and, and we, we correspond with each other and get together once in a while. He's in the same place in that as, as he has been, I mean, there's just a bunch of junk that he, he needed to let go of that was just not working for him. And when he would share some of these, like, and he was, I just can't believe this anymore. I can't believe that anymore. And I remember saying to him, like, I can't either. Like some of the stuff that you were raised to believe in as a Christian, I don't believe it either. So I, part of it is that, but in both of these cases, both of these young men, boy, I can just tell they can't shake Jesus. They can't, they won't, they, they, they refused because I think somewhere they, they got to know the real person. And I, I love your, your, uh, the analogy of the marriage thing. You know, so at some point, I think they really did fall in love with Jesus and they've never not. They're just now re- renegotiating what the marriage looks like, as you put it. Yeah, there's a there's this little book uh, by a Roman Catholic uh, who survived um, who survived World War II named Walter Sizek, Um, and he wrote a book called "He Leadeth Me." It's this beautiful reflection on um, on what happened uh, when the, the the Russians came and took Germany over, and how he was essentially taken to a concentration camp in Russia. And this, but he in in that book he talks about how what you and I tend to think of as a crisis of faith. So when somebody says, I'm having a crisis of faith, it's more often than not, it's not actually a crisis of faith as much as a crisis of understanding. And 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 the point being that just because we don't understand something does not mean we lack faith. In fact, having faith often means you don't understand. Faith and understanding are not the exact same thing. Um, and so to, to assume that I don't understand something, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. It actually takes faith to acknowledge that you don't understand something and to be willing to still accept it. Yes. And I, I love that. And that, that reminds me of, and on this podcast many times, I've defined faith as an extension of knowledge based on knowledge, that I have some experiential knowledge, um, just like, I, like I've spent time with you, AJ. I know things about, I don't know everything about you, but I know enough about you that um, when I when I contacted you today for our talk, I had faith that you would be who you are. Mm. Like I knew AJ is that AJ is this very intelligent, uh, incredibly learned, uh, studious scholar, fun guy, everything that you've been on this podcast today, that's been my experience of you. And by faith, I knew that was what was going to happen when we Got together today, but did I like know it, know it, yeah. like have any doubt? Well, maybe, I mean, yeah. you could have been having a really bad day and today I, I see you and you're like, I've, I'm not good today. Well, you know what I'm saying is that, that faith is an extension of knowledge based on knowledge and we have experiential knowledge of things. And the Jesus that I met when I was 18 years old, I mean, I was just finishing high school and, and Christ became very real to me in a very personal way. That's never changed. Hmm even though my goodness, my, uh, my understanding of so many other things have changed along the way. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with your, your marriage analogy. I like that one. Yeah. Well, can I, let me, let me lean in just a little bit more on the, on the marriage front. Um, when we say we believe in Jesus um, and we say we have faith in Jesus, uh, I have faith in Jesus. Uh, I met Jesus when I was 16. Jesus has transformed my entire existence. When we say we have faith in Jesus, what we really often mean by that is we often mean, I have faith that Jesus will do something. 
To have faith in the person of Jesus is one thing, but sometimes along the way we equate Jesus with certain things. And so we, we, when we say we love Jesus, we have faith in Jesus, what we often mean is I have faith in Jesus that everything in my life will work out to plan. I have faith in Jesus that I'll get married by the time I'm 25. I have faith in Jesus that my job will work out well. I have faith in Jesus that the church I pastor will grow, so on and so forth. But And somewhere along the way, we moved from having faith in Jesus to having faith that certain things would happen. And then when mm. those things don't happen, we start to say, well, can Jesus be trusted? When in reality, we're trusting the false formula that we've created for ourselves rather than trusting in Jesus. Here's a great example, marriage. Um, I, more than any human in the world, have my I have more faith in my wife as a human than anybody else. Um, she has my best interest at heart. She knows me more than anybody. As much as you know me, she knows me. You can give me nicknames. You can call me Aloysius Juniper. She has nicknames for me that no one will ever hear. She has an intimate knowledge of me, and uh, I trust her more than any human being uh, in the world. And yet, um, she loses my car keys all the time. Um, it, I, in fact, most mornings, I feel like I can't find the keys because they've, they've been lost. I, be, I trust in my wife, but I do not trust her to not lose my keys. When I say, I, this is actually really important because when we say we follow Jesus, it's important what, that we get really clear about what we mean by that. Because if we believe that I believe in Jesus, that means I won't ever get cancer we're setting ourselves up for tremendous pain in the future. Mm-hmm. If we're saying, I have faith in Jesus, and that means I'll never be hurt by the church. That's a dangerous formula. Mm. So we have faith in Jesus, but it's very important that we don't slip in false promises that Jesus mm-hmm. never offered of himself. I, yeah. tr- I trust in Jesus more than anybody, even more than my wife. But I also mm-hmm. know that Jesus is going to hurt my feelings. He's going to say things and do things that drive me mad. But I don't follow mm. him and have faith in him because I get everything I want. I follow him because he's worthy of my trust. Yeah, that's really good. I remember when I was just starting out in the faith and I was pursuing ministry and I, I got to spend, oh gosh, about two hours with this guy who was, he was I think in his 90s and he had lived this incredible life of faith. And I just said, I, one day I hope I have your faith. And, um, and he was like, well, young man, here's the only thing that I know, you know, and when someone has those kind of big hyperbolic statement, here's the only thing that I know, but he said, Jesus has never left me or forsaken me. And I've never forgotten that moment. I'm, I was, I can see it. We were sitting on the porch of a cabin, looking at a lake and that moment's indelibly etched into my mind because that has been the case. I mean, it, it, yeah, life doesn't always work. I mean, I, we had a, a daughter who passed, you know, who was born with, with severe birth defects and died. That wasn't in my plan for what Jesus would do in my life. But I never let go of He never left me. or He's never forsaken me, you know, in that. And so, yeah, I, I think that's right, AJ. I like that. I like that as well. Um, the idea that it's, it's not what Jesus is going to do for me because because then it's a conditional kind of faith, isn't it? Because if those things don't happen, if my church doesn't grow or I get cancer or this, my child dies or whatever, then you think, well, then I have to let go. Mm. That God is no good. Mm. Um, that's really, really good. 
Wow. Thank you for that. Well, I, I just, I loved the book so much. And as I said in my endorsement of it, After Doubt is, is one of those books that I wish every Christian could read because we have to have this understanding and not be afraid of it and say, no, this is a natural part of living as a Christ follower. We have to, I, I've, I've, I've never seen my doubts in the same way since reading the book. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yes. And Jim, I do, I do hope that um, for anybody that reads it, they find the same, the same comfort. And the, the, the reality is we, we all, if you're listening to this, you have uh, in your own heart, your own mind, little questions and things that, um, that poke up that, that really maybe do kind of stick with you and they're, they're difficult. And I think that the goal of the Christian life should be that we are people that want truth. And that I think part and parcel of wanting truth is that we don't ignore the stuff that's inside of us, that we, we yeah. don't ignore those questions and that we actually attend to them and give them space that we treat our questions the way uh, that the good Samaritan treated the man on the side of the road. And we learn to pick mm-hmm. them up, take them to the inn, listen to them and be shaped by them. It doesn't mean they're right. And it doesn't mean that our answers are right. But what we can't do is walk on the other side. Mm. Wow. That is deep and profound. Thank you, Brother Swoboda. A.J. Swoboda, again, the author of After Doubt. I just, I love your work and am excited to continue to journey with you and be a part of, uh, of all that God continues to do through you. And um, again, just thanks, AJ, for being on the Things About Podcast. Thanks for all you do, Jim. It's a joy to be your friend and to get to be with you today. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with AJ Swoboda. That was a very enriching conversation on a very important topic. Hey, folks, I want to let you know about a recent development here at Friends University where I teach. We have an undergraduate degree program in Christian spiritual formation a Bachelor of Arts degree, that's both a first and a second major. Now, I teach in this program, as well as some other amazing professors, and I am pleased to announce that Friends University is offering an amazing scholarship of up to $18,000 per year to students interested in studying Christian formation as a part of their college experience. In addition to this amazing scholarship, there'll be hands-on learning with ministry leaders, working with me and others, and great opportunities for internships. Again, this is for both a first major, those who plan on going into ministry, as well as those seeking it as a second major, meaning those who are going to become accountants or therapists or graphic designers or teachers or engineers, any number of other vocations, but they also want to grow in their spiritual lives while in college and get a pretty big scholarship to help pay for college. So if you know someone who would benefit from a degree like this, check out our website, apprenticeinstitute.org and click on the Friends University tab. Again, ApprenticeInstitute.org, and click on the Friends University tab. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, ApprenticeInstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend, and you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.